or in this case, a parliament, um, because he is or she is divinely ordained. Um, you know, he they get their right to rule from divine authority. Um, and in fact, his own father, James, had written a whole treatise on this called Basilicon Doron. And it, it's a there's growing absolutism all over Europe as kings try to kind of consolidate and centralize the power within themselves. Um, and of course, Louis the Fourteenth will do that actually very successfully only a few decades after this. Um, but what we'll see is that Charles really struggles to do that because he tries to usurp the powers of the parliament and it doesn't work for him. So, Una, if we just sort of set the scene at the time, we're coming off the back of the reign of the children of Henry VIII. Religious division very much a part of this because, of course, Henry's broken from the church so he can you know, divorce Catherine of Aragon, mm-hmm. marry Anne Boleyn. Um, Edward, his son, was a... The Protestant. Then we've got Mary Tudor, who is just trying to kill all of the uh, the Protestants, and so and then Elizabeth I is a Protestant again. But was religious division still a massive thing in England? It is, but it's even more complex than sort of Catholics versus Protestants. Um, remember that the reason Henry VIII, as you said, um, s- splits from Rome is because he doesn't want to have be answer to the Pope. So he wants his own church and he does that called the Church of England. Now, Henry doesn't really have an awful lot of problem with a lot of the things that go on in the Catholic Church. Uh, he loves all the smells and bells, right? So he, his Church of England or the Anglican Church um, still retains a lot of those um, kind of, you know, the, the gold and the red velvet and the statues of the saints and all that kind of stuff. Um, what you get by contrast, on the continent, the, the Protestant movement is, uh, you know, which starts with Martin Luther um, and then spreads to, so we have Lutheranism that kind of spreads through the German lands. And then we have Calvinism, which kind of comes from Switzerland, France. Um, and that's even more austere than Lutheranism. So these are very ascetic people. So they believe in giving up the things of the world, being really strict with your faith, um, uh, being really, you know, close to the Bible. They believe in predestination, that God has chosen you as one of the, you know, to be saved at the end of your life. So that kind of Calvinist belief spreads particularly to Scotland, um, where you have the Presbyterian movement. Um, So these are all Protestant sects. But they differ in various kinds of ways and they're often fighting with each other. When it gets even more complex when you get to England, so you've got Henry's church, the Church of England, the Anglicans, but then you've got all of these faiths, Protestant sects that dissent from that. They're often called dissenters. Um, You've got Baptists, you've got Presbyterians, you've got Quakers, uh, Ranters, Fifth Monarchists, Grindletonians, Muggletonians. I'm not making these up. They go on and on I and know, on, this right? This sounds like something out of Harry Potter. It, she, that's where she gets it from, right? Um, <gasps> is, so these are all these kinds of faiths that lie on a, what I would call like a spectrum of um, more or less puritanical. And so that word Puritans that often is used for this period is we have to be careful in that in this exact moment, that's a slur. No one actually identifies as a Puritan. Um, You might say they're more puritanical than the next uh, Protestant sect. But you've got all of these um, Protestant sects fighting amongst each other. The Catholics, there are still some Catholics in England at this point, but they are very much a minority, very much a persecuted minority. They pay, you can be uh, what's called a recusant. You can admit to being Catholic, but you get fined and you get all kinds of restrictions on your behaviour. 
So really the battle that we were we're going to see erupt here is more over who, how um, England, what the faith of England will look like. It will definitely be Protestant, but what will it look like? And in fact, the thing about the, 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 the way the Catholicism comes into it is that anyone who's high Anglican, so really into this kind of old-fashioned Anglican church, is always suspected of being a kind of pseudo-Catholic. Um, it's a kind of slippery slope. And of course, that means all of the royal family because they will always be the heads of the Church of England. So there's always this suspicion and it hangs over uh, Charles all the time that he's trying to drag the country back to Catholicism. So it's really quite a complex religious territory at this point. Oh my goodness, yeah. that is way more complicated than I was expecting. Yep. Una. Uh, Dr Una McIlvenner is here, uh, Australian Research Council Future Fellow and Senior Lecturer in English at Australian National University. And so then we have um, young Charles the young, you know, becoming king, and then he is a devout Roman Catholic, and he goes to marry another Roman Catholic. So this is probably not good news for the people who are already suspicious. Okay, we have to be careful here. See, Charles okay. is not a Roman Catholic. Uh, he isn't. Right, no, he's okay. Anglican. He's the head of the Church of England. He's an Anglican, but he's high Anglican. And as I said, they, he's always kind of suspected of being... So he's one being, step from being a Catholic. He's, he's sympathetic to um, the the um, the Catholic faith, and so there's all these there's always this um, suspicion of him, and of course um, he he lives up to this kind of suspicion by endlessly trying to marry the Catholic princesses of Europe. So first of all, they want to marry him to the Infanta of Spain, so she's the the daughter of the King of Spain, so it's an incredibly powerful Spanish empire. Um, you couldn't get a more Spanish match. Uh, sorry, a more Catholic kind of. Um, heiress than that. Uh, the negotiations, he actually goes to Spain with the Duke of Buckingham, who is his father's right-hand man. Now, his father is still on the throne at this point. Uh, the Duke of Buckingham is bad, bad news. Everybody hates him. Um, <laughs> he goes, it, it goes horribly wrong in Spain. He comes back um, and Charles says, I'm going to declare war. We should declare war on Spain. That's how bad it goes. So then they change their mind and they'll, they say, OK, we'll marry the Henrietta Maria, who is the daughter of the King and Queen of France. She's also Catholic, so it's not much better, but it's a little bit better. <laughs> Okay, but there were fears about how she might influence him on matters of religion, weren't there? Oh, absolutely, because she is absolutely not converting to any of this Protestant nonsense. She uh, refuses to participate in his coronation, for example, in 1625, because it's a Protestant religious ceremony. Um, she's secretly having mass said at court on a regular basis. Um, the The fear is that because of her influence, that Charles will lift restrictions on those recusant Catholics. Um, and in fact, of course, he that's exactly what he promises the French king that he will do, Louis XIV. Um, then it's also, um, they're, they're very worried that he's essentially going to hinder the progress of the reformation of this um, Church of England. Um, people are trying to make it ever more puritanical, let's say. Um, he supports the anti-Calvinist uh, writer and thinker, uh, Richard Montague. Um, and when he th that seems really um, unpopular, he goes and makes him royal chaplain. So he really, he really antagonises things. He doesn't seem to have a sense of, OK, maybe I need to back down here. Um, so there's always that the, these are ways that Catholicism is creeping back as far as they are concerned.
All right, and so if the majority of England is a Protestant by this point, Charles isn't winning himself too many friends. But then he also became increasingly frustrating for his parliament to work with. So his reign began in 1625. Parliament was still a relatively new part of government, I would imagine. So how was it working at that time? How much power did it have? Oh, no, no, not at all. Parliament is not new at all. It's been around since the 13th century. It's one of the oldest institutions of the, you know, of the English uh, crown. Um, It's really important and and one of one of the key functions right from you know the high middle ages is that parliament's function um the king requires its consent if he wants to levy taxes so very much the same as the french model at this point um and that's really important he can't raise any money to do what he wants to do unless parliament agrees to it so he of course because his it's kind of complicated his sister is the queen of bohemia and the 30 years war has started a kind of about her. So he kind of wants to help his sister over in uh, the German lands um, and wants to get involved in the Thirty Years' War, uh, which started in 1618. It's been going for, you know, um, a decade already by this point. And it's like a world war for the Europeans on the continent. Parliament does not want to get involved in that. It's it's a disaster. So they say, no, no, let's just... Um, Let's just attack some Spanish ships and take their loot. That's a very common kind of way of making money. Um, the Spanish are bringing back all of this fantastic silver from the Americas. Um, so they refuse or they try to limit his abilities to collect taxes. There's two kinds of taxes, tonnage and poundage. It's not important, but they've, be, they've been around forever. And most of the sovereigns until that point had had the right to collect those taxes for life. They want to limit him to one year. So we're already at a really kind of a moment of tension here. They haven't even drawn up the the final ruling on this, and he just goes and collects the taxes anyway. These are duties. So that money gets used. Buckingham goes off and does his naval campaign. It goes disastrously wrong. As I said, Buckingham is bad news. But Charles is in support of Buckingham no matter what. In fact, two MPs speak out against Buckingham in, in Parliament, and he has them arrested which is also very, very shocking. So then he's getting nowhere. So he tries this thing called a forced loan, which is essentially tax raised without parliamentary consent. Um, it goes to like it goes to court. The legal case, the judges will often find in favour of the king just because of, you know, tradition. He's the king. Because yeah. he's the king, right? But um, this, this case actually says that he, the king can imprison without trial people who refuse to pay this tax. So we're really at this point... You know, trial, you know, imprisonment without trial is absolutist, tyrannical kind of rule at this point. So we're really in absolutist territory here. Yeah. And I, I understand, Una, there was something called ship money as well. Is that is that similar to what we were talking about or something different? It's another kind of um, uh, thing that he does. Um, they He... It's a feudal levy. It's a very old-fashioned mm. one um, that's been around for a long time. Um, it was only ever collected during wartime, and it was only co- ever collected from the coastal areas, who are the you know the areas that are kind of making money from their ships during the wartime. Uh, he decides, oh no, let's just ignore those rules. Let's collect it during peacetime and collect it from everyone. So everyone is really angry with him, and he in fact um, prosecutes a guy who doesn't pay it for one year, and that raises like a really popular protest as well. Ordinary mm. people are getting angry too. Oh, goodness me. Okay, so he's he's annoying the religious uh, Protestants. He's annoying Parliament. He's annoying anyone who has to pay tax. Anyone else he annoyed? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he does all kinds of things to raise money because, of course, um, what we have to understand is that um, when when the Parliament doesn't agree to what he says, he just shuts it down. Uh, it's called prorogation. So he prorogues Parliament um, 
in June 20, 1628 because they oppose his plans to levy this tax without asking them. Uh, then about seven months later, he opens it again. Parliament is even more kind of frustrated with him um, and they make all of these kinds of addresses and things. And he actually then shuts it for 11 years. And so he rules what's called the personal rule, if you're in favour of him, or it's called the 11 years tyranny, you know, depending who you are. Um, so he can't raise any taxes because that's what Parliament exists to do. So he tries to get money from all kinds of other places. He tr- starts granting monopolies. Um, there's a statute forbidding that. Uh, he does it anyway. Um, he brings in the, he calls in the Act of Revocation, which is any lands uh, that are given to nobility um, that are church or royal lands can just be revoked and brought back. He does this to the Scottish nobility. So he really angers them. He redraws the... Uh, the boundaries of the forested land. Um, so you've got forests all over Britain uh, that have shrunk over the, you know, over the decades and the centuries. He reverts them to the original boundaries and says, okay, anyone using that land is now going to be fined. So lots of people angry there. He sells off a lot of forest lands to um, uh, farmers, to, for- uh, to the iron industry. So people are using, people are living on this land. Um, he still, after all of that, faces bankruptcy in 1640. The city of London has completely had it with him, so they're not going to give him any loans. He can't get it from anywhere else. And so he goes into the Tower of London and takes the silver bullion there and says, oh, I'll pay it back with interest. That will never happen, right? So um, all of these things are are um, really um, angering so many people. Um, and then, of course, there's the Scottish and the Irish, and that all goes very badly. Oh, my right? goodness. <laughs> and I don't think we have time, basically, to go through in detail everyone that, uh, that mm. Charles annoyed. Dr Una McIlvain is here with you on This Week in History on Nightlife. She's a future fellow at the Australian Research Council and a senior lecturer in English at Australian National University. So, um, Una, let's cut to a, a moment in 1642 when he attempts to arrest five members of parliament. What What happened here and how did that sort of really set things off? Okay, so to really kind of quickly bring it together, um, he has, um, there's um, uprisings in Scotland, uh, there's a rebellion in Ireland, and he is trying to, uh, trying to fight both of them kind of at the same time. Um, he needs money for the war in uh, to for the uh, the war in Scotland. So he calls the English and the Irish Parliament. So again, uh, Scotland and Ireland, separate kingdoms, their own parliaments, their own churches. Um, he is monarch over all of them. So he can call uh, the parliaments. They uh, the Irish um, have the Irish Parliament has agreed to give him some money. England refuses. He essentially um, the Parliament has to be dissolved because of course it's another disaster. It's called the Short Parliament. He. Um, the Scots, when they see that, that he he can't even control his own English parliament, they say, ooh, well, we don't need to, um, you know, need his consent to rule either. And they march their armies into the north of England and take the north of England. So then he has to call parliament again. We're in a major crisis. Three quarters of the MPs that turn up for that, what's called the long parliament, are opposed to him at this point because it's all been disastrous. So what he does in August 1642 is he decides that he's going to arrest uh, five members of the House of Commons and one and a peer as well, one of the House of Lords, um, they march in, he marches into, the, the, the warrant for their arrest um, is released and those guys escape without harm. But he turns up with an armed guard to arrest them and he marches into the House of Commons. No uh, monarch had ever um, entered the House of Commons it's an unprecedented invasion of the chamber to arrest its members. Um, it's considered a grave breach of parliamentary privilege. And it's kind of the last straw 
um, that he has so little respect for this um, institution. How does this then translate into a civil war where everybody takes up arms and draws their sort of says, okay, this is the side we're on? Yeah, so Parliament immediately seizes London. Um, they, uh, their armies, both sides will arm, the uh, parliamentary forces and royalist forces. Mm-hmm. The Parliament controls sort of the south and the uh, southeast, um, including the navy, importantly. Uh, Charles's army made up the royalists. Um, they're led by Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who's uh, his nephew. Um, they control kind of the north and the west of England. Mm-hmm. And, and um, presumably Charles already has these sort of royal forces at his command. Does the other side have to actually raise an army? They do. And they raise um, a really extraordinary army called the New Model Army, which is um, kind of um, really revolutionary in all kinds of ways. It's a standing army. Um, Those guys can go anywhere. They're increasingly made up not of uh, nobles. They're made up of ordinary men. Um, And they are highly trained, highly um, disciplined. And so quite different to the sort of traditional royalist forces of Charles. All right. So how does it play out? Look, I'm not a military historian and I'm not, I'm not going to bore you with endless battles and dates, but it goes back and forth essentially for several years. Um, what's, I think what's really important, while it all it goes back and forth, is that those uh, roundheads, as they're called, so uh, Cromwell's New Model Army, these are men who increasingly become more and more radical. And they start to, as it, this goes on, they're in contact with the levellers who are a kind of radical movement that say we, everybody's equal. Every, we should get rid of anything that's, that creates a hierarchy. So they start to propose ideas like universal male suffrage, um, re- reform of uh, elections, uh, having elections where you elect parliament members every two years, um, religious freedoms, uh, and to imprisonment for debt. So these are all really revolutionary ideas at the time. And um, they will really become important for um, the vision that there is for this this nation that will come after the war. Um Essentially, it goes back and forth until the king is captured. Uh, there's the Battle of Naseby in four, June 1645 and a siege of Oxford uh, where Charles is um, manages to escape in disguise. Um, and he, what he does is he gives himself to the Scottish army, thinking that they will take care of him. And he goes for nine months up to Newcastle. Um, there's nine months of negotiations. Eventually, it goes nowhere and Char- the Scots deliver Charles up to the English Parliament in 1647. Wow. Why did he think the Scots would protect him and why didn't they in the end? Um, I mean, they kind of tried to. They tried Hmm. to negotiate. I think he thought he was collateral, you know, and that he would, um, you know, and like I said, it went on for nine months. So he must Hmm. have, um, you know, they thought there was something to gain by it. Um, And at times they did. And, you know, he does, um, he does try to escape. Mm. He actually flees to the Isle of Wight at one point because he thinks the governor on the Isle of Wight is sympathetic to him, but he just delivers him straight up to the um, to England. Um, he's imprisoned again, but he's still in this period signing a secret treaty with the <laughs> Scottish to to get them to invade England on his behalf and restore him to the throne. So th- this actually looks like it's going to happen. Royalists rise up all over England and Wales, but actually it's crushed um, when the the Scots are defeated in August 1648. And that is really the final end of it. Oh my goodness. So at no point though, do you think maybe I should just learn some lessons here and negotiate a bit? None of that. He just remained obsessed with the divine right of kings through to this end? To to the very end, to the very, very end. He refuses to um, recognise any of this as legitimate. Okay, so once he's in the hands of the um, the roundheads or the parliamentarians, what do they charge him with? High treason, essentially. I mean, a, f- a few things, but they um, 
any uh, parliament in, at this point is still like kind of trying to negotiate with him. But we have what's essentially a military coup. Um, it's called Pride's Purge. It's led by uh, Colonel Thomas Pride on the 6th and 7th of December, um, 1648. Any MPs who were not in sympathy with the military are, you know, sort of rounded up, ex- arrested, or a lot of them know when they just stay away. Um, so we have essentially the military now running the country. This army has become really, really uh, efficient and um, powerful. Um the House of Commons indicts the king for treason. The Lords reject that. Uh, it becomes essentially a struggle over how justice works, how it operates. Because the chief justices, as I said, they, they're often, you know, traditional in line with the king. They say that your indictment of the king is an unlawful thing to do. You can't do that. So what the House of Commons does is it essentially just creates a, you know, a new bill, creating a separate court to just for the trial. And then they pass it. They declare it an act. And the act establishes 135 commissioners who essentially will sit on this trial. Only, I think this is really revealing, only 68 of those 135 named actually attend the trial. Um, so they are enormously divided about this. And just about even the fact that you can do this, that you can put the king on trial. The trial begins on the 20th of January, 1649. He's accused of tyranny um, and particularly of sacrificing his people and overthrowing the rights and the liberties of the people. And I think when you realise that there's estimates say that about 6% of the population died during those wars, that there's a lot to be answered for here. You know, is this just his ego doing this, right? He, of course, refuses to even recognise the court. He says at one point, I would know by what power I am called hither, by what lawful authority. He doesn't even recognise it. So this, you know, I mean, to declare the king, you know, first put him before a court, as you say, declare him guilty of treason and plan to execute him. This is a huge and shocking moment in English history. What do you think the people on the street would have thought about this? I mean, sure, you know, things have deteriorated, but this act of of planning to execute the king is enormous. It's true. I mean, there's division absolutely everywhere. I mean, only 59 of those commissioners actually sign the death warrant, right? So even they cannot agree on it. People are really shocked. Um, they they believed he was divinely ordained. And so they might have been opposed to him. They might have thought he was full of faults. But this is like going literally against God. And God's, um, you know, killing a monarch is just unthinkable. So there's so much division. People are very shocked. People are very upset. So what happens? Tell us about his, his final hours. I think he, he brings his children in to see him, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's um, always, you know, we don't know what they said, but, you know, Mm. there's lots of imagination around it. It must have been very awful. Um, He was essentially brought out under guard from St. Jim's Palace um, to the Palace of Whitehall. Uh, They'd built a scaffold in front of Banqueting House. Um, He gave a speech. He he asked for an extra uh, shirt to put on. He was just wearing a white shirt um, because it was a cold day. It's January. It must have been freezing. And... um, he, he gives a speech. Only the people on the scaffold can actually hear it. Um, he actually um, blames his own um, inability to prevent the execution of his, his, his second in command, Earl, the Earl of Strafford, um, as sort of karma. He said, I should have stood my ground then. Um, he doesn't ever really sort of say that I did this. I was wrong, you know. Um, so at 2 p.m., uh, the executioner comes out and he puts his head on the block. And um, it's for the only time ever in public execution history, the hang uh, the hangman, the executioner is masked. Normally, you know exactly who it is. Wow. Um, because this is so, and again, that's another sign of how controversial this is. Um, but Is he ever unmasked? Do they find out who it is years later? They it, People mostly believe that it was Richard Brandon who was the common hangman of London. Um, and the rather 
theories, but the the fact that this was a quick single strike that took his head off with the axe, it shows that it was a professional doing it. So it's a, it's probably Brandon. Um, and that's most widely believed. There's a, a spectator there who famously says his name is Philip Henry. He's quite young at the time, but he remembers, he says, a moan as I never heard before and desire I may never hear again goes up from the crowd um, and they run forth and dip their cloths and their handkerchiefs in the blood. Um, the blood of an executed criminal was believed to uh, carry tas- talismanic magical powers. And of course, the blood of a decapitated king. I mean, that must have been amazing, you know. Um, his The day after the execution, his head was sewn back onto his body. It was then embalmed and put in a lead coffin and buried at the chapel at Windsor Castle. Still there? I think so. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is. So he's been buried with royalty. He hasn't been sort of thrown out of being being allowed to be buried with them. So, look, Char- um, Una, we'll get you to do your ballad for us in a moment, and I think we might get you back on another occasion to talk about the restoration of the monarchy, which is when Charles' son, Charles II, is put back on the throne after this whole period. But what's the legacy, do you think, of his rule and his execution? How did it change England? Uh, you know, it it goes badly pretty quickly. Um, ten days after he's executed, his memoir appears. It gets published uh, called Icon Basilica and it kind of fashions him into a martyr, especially in Anglican and royalist circles. Um, England itself becomes, of course, a commonwealth, this idea that the, those ar- army soldiers had been fighting for. It's supposed to be a level society. In some ways it is. But actually, of course, as we know, Cromwell then kind of installs himself at one point as Lord Protector for life. It changes into a protectorate. So we're very close again to that kind of monarchical rule. Um, He can call and dissolve Parliament. Again, one of those things that they fought to to stop. Um, And then he, you know, when he dies, his uh, son becomes protectorate. So this passing on like a monarchy. Dictatorial dynasty. Right. It's just like Napoleon. You know, it's all those same sorts of things. um, There is also all the problems with the fact that they are puritanical, really. And so they ban anything on the Sabbath, including, of course, Christmas. Um, Terrible. Theatres get closed. It's a nightmare. Um, Richard is pretty hopeless as protector and he's replaced um, and by 1660 we've got the restoration of the party king uh, Charles II Uh, they in fact a couple years after that they actually dig up the bodies of the regicides so three of them including Cromwell, and they hang the corpses at Tyburn. They execute the corpses. They cut off their heads and they stick Cromwell's head on a pole that's stuck above Westminster Hall where it's displayed for over 20 years. And in fact, it gets blown off at some point and then it goes on tour of the of England for like another century. Um, we don't know if it actually was his head, but... <laughs> I know there have been whole books written about what happened to Oliver Cromwell's head. So it's, um, it is quite the story, but it just goes to show that those people who were reluctant to sign the death warrant and didn't want to be known, well, they were kind of onto something because things swung back around, didn't they, 20 years later? That's now, it. Una, have you got a ballad for us? I do. Of course you do. I've got a great one that really shows how badly things go wrong so quickly um, because of Cromwell's kind of t- tyranny. Um, it's... Uh, called A Coffin for King Charles, A Crown for Cromwell, A Pit for the People. It's actually a three-part song. So you have your friend, you sing it with your friends. Um, so one person is Cromwell, one's Charles, and one is the people, or, or everyone else is the people. Okay. Are you so, going to just do all the parts? I will. <laughs> so just imagine. So the first one is to the tune of Fane, I would. So the first one is Cromwell in the throne. And of course, a throne and a crown is what a king has, right? Not He's not supposed to have any of this stuff, right? So, so the deed is done, the royal head is severed, 
as I meant when I first begun, and strongly have endeavoured. Now Charles I is tumbled down, the second I not fear, I grasp the sceptre, wear the crown, nor for Jehovah care. So he's godless now, he doesn't even care about God. Then you get King Charles in his coffin, and he's talking, he's singing to Cromwell. Thinkst thou, base slave, though in my grave, like other men I lie, my sparkling fame and royal name can, as thou wishest, die. No caitiff, in my son I live, the black prince called by name, and he shall ample vengeance give to those that did me doom. Which is what happens. And then you have the poor people in the pit. Suppressed, depressed, involved in woes, great Charles, thy people be, basely deceived with specious shows by those that murdered thee. We are enslaved to tyrants' hests who have our freedom won. Our fainting hopes now only rests on thy succeeding son. So they're very happy when he comes back. Right, so they're already looking to, okay, can we get Charles's son to save us at some point? Yeah, I mean, that ballad appears the, the same year that he's executed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Una, thank you so much for joining us in This Week in History once again to explain this story to us. And always, you're the only history correspondent who ever sings to us. So can I thank you very much for that too? You're very welcome. <laughs> uh, Dr Una McIlverner, she's a future fellow at the Australian Research Council and a senior lecturer in English at Australian National University. Nightlife with Suzanne Hill on ABC Radio.